You're listening to the Belfer Center's Office Hours. Watch highlights from this and other Office Hours interviews on YouTube at youtube.com slash belfercenter. Our group sat down with Radoslav Sikorsky, former foreign minister and defense minister of Poland who previously worked as a war correspondent in Angola and Afghanistan. Sikorsky is a Fisher Family Fellow with the Belfer Center's Future of Diplomacy Project. You've had such an interesting career. You've been a war correspondent, you've been a journalist, you've been in politics, uh, Speaker of the House, Foreign Minister, uh, Minister of National Defense. Uh, what, what gets you so excited about foreign policy? What's the appeal to you? Well, when you're from a country as exposed to the uh, winds of history as Poland is, it's um, something that you feel personally because I spent my childhood under communism because of the outcome of um, foreign policy decisions in the 1930s and 40s. Um, so in, uh, in a geopolitically vulnerable place, you, you feel that foreign policy really determines uh, the way you live. Is there something about this moment uh, that is particularly concerning to you. I know you've spoken about the EU. You're a very uh, vocal uh, proponent of the EU, of EU integrity. Um, is that something that concerns you greatly in this moment? Well, absolutely. We shed communism. We fought for 45 years for freedom in Poland in order to become a normal country. And for us, normal means Western European, which means democratic, free market, and a member of the of the EU, um, which changes Poland's geopolitical context. As a member, and I try to make it as influential a member of the, of the European Union as possible, um, Poland is a partner for Germany, has some influence over Germany, and is a border country of uh, the European Union rather than a buffer state between Russia and Germany. Is Russia concerned to you today? Does it, does it, and does it feel at all like the 1930s to you? Well, Russia, um, with its Anschluss of Crimea and its uh, hybrid war on Ukraine, uh, has broken a taboo uh, that existed after the Second World War, which is uh, she changed um, uh, borders in Europe by force on the pretext of protecting its compatriots. We've seen that movie before and we know how it ends. What, 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 do you really think that Russia wants to occupy a significant amount of territory? I mean, if we make the analogy to 1939, certainly with Poland or even earlier in the 30s, um, that it signals a, a different set of um, occupational targets, um, much larger than, than maybe just a Crimea. Or do you, do you see that as a, just as a first step well, you don't have to take my words for it. You just need to read the speeches of President Putin, mm -hmm. uh, in which he described Ukraine as an artificial country. Uh, and you only need to track what they do. Um, let's remember that the uh, frozen conflict in the Donbass is the remnants of an operation uh, whose uh, purpose was to take half of Ukraine. There were these putches in Odessa, in Mikhoyev, all over uh, southern Ukraine, um, but it mostly failed. What, what do you think drives Putin? What, what does he want? Some people say that he wants a, a resurgent Russia, Russia, uh, the Russia like it used to be. Um, and other people say, actually, he's just, he's just interested in, in his own personal financial wealth, and he wants to stay in power. And the man is worth billion, hundreds of billions of dollars, they say. Uh, what do you think drives him? 
he wants to make Russia great again. Yeah. Uh, it is very difficult uh, to make the transition from empire to a normal nation state. Uh, and Russia is the last of uh, those European countries making that transition. And it's particularly hard when um, the empire is not overseas, but is contiguous with, with your own territory and when your subject peoples speak similar languages. So what do you do? How, how, do, you, how do you battle that? I mean, of course, use of force against a nuclear, uh, you know, a country that has thousands of nukes is not something that would be, seems like a viable solution. But how do you diplomatically work around this? Well, first of all, uh, we need to uh, beef up the guarantees uh, and the um, uh, material uh, manifestations of the guarantees for NATO members. And then uh, we should help those countries that want to become more like us, more democratic, more law-governed, including Russia, if she chose that course. Yeah. It is Russia herself that has excluded herself so from, you, the, from the EU's neighborhood policy, from convergence with the West. Yeah. But we should always keep that possibility open. You would invite Russia to NATO, is that, is that what I understand? Uh, if she can fulfilled criteria, right. which are democracy, right. civilian control of the armed forces, and uh, above all, settling territorial disputes with neighbors. Yeah. Uh, so Russia would have to go through a very... Um, a painful uh, adjustment process, but if she aspired to, we should help her. And, and, and you mentioned beefing up. I mean, beefing up NATO. I, I take that to mean uh, greater troop presence or military presence or missiles. Uh, is, uh, is that which right? Is, which is happening. Of uh, course. Uh, Fifteen years after Central Europe joined NATO, uh, uh, plans to defend it were at last drawn up and at last there are now exercises and rotational presence. Mm -hmm. Good. I think it sends the signal um, that NATO territory is out of bounds for aggression and I think it's a stabilizing um, move that prevents miscalculation. I want to move on to other, other problems in Europe, um, in particular right-wing nationalism. That's been a, a topic for many years now. Uh, and we've seen pictures, of course, in Poland during Independence Day in November. There was a 60,000-person march uh, with signs that said, you know, uh, white Europe and, and, and white Poland. Um, what, what are the roots of this uh, right-wing nationalism? Uh, a small minority among those 60,000 were actual racists and fascists. Uh, but yes, the optics of uh, marching... Uh, with torches at night in Europe doesn't look good. And yes, there is a resurgence of, uh, resurgence of um, nationalism, uh, uh, which is not always um, uh, condemned by the authorities. Um, but I think it's a pan-Western phenomenon. Uh, in, in the United States, you also have... Uh, uh, tribalism, you have the despair of endangered majorities, uh, you have uh, national politics and um, socialist economics, um, uh, and in different countries it plays out differently, but we do have a, a, a reaction to the financial crisis, a, a desire for, for, for fairer capitalism. We do, we do have a universal cry for uh, countries, or in Europe's case, uh, the European Union, controlling its bo their borders. 
Um, and we have uh, widespread cultural anxiety yeah. um, to do with uh, uh, endangered identities, to do with people's search for meaning, uh, and to do with the fact that as the West, with every decade, we are becoming a smaller proportion of the world's population yeah. and the world's economy, uh, which always produces um, self-doubt. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, the traditional role of populists in democratic elect uh, um, political systems has been to name and um, and um, and make evident uh, issues that have been neglected. And those issues are real and have have to be dealt with. You know, I, I see this point. I mean, I guess Poland, and, and I agree, I think it's it's pan-Western. In fact, it's not just Western. There's left-wing populism, of course, on the rise, and, and has been for decades in, in, uh, in South America. But uh, Poland strikes me as such, a, as such an interesting case because economically, Poland is doing really well. It has had an average of 4 to 5% growth over the last, say, 20 years. It's, uh, it, it weathered the financial, global financial crisis better than most other countries. It does have a 6% unemployment, but that's fairly low for, yeah, you know, for this sort of stuff. And, um, and also it's 98% European, high 90s in percentage of white population. Um, it strikes me as like, what are they afraid of? And so you see it as more of a, uh, like a, a loss of identity. It's something that on, the, on paper, everything looks just fine. In yep. fact, for Poland, it looks better than everybody else. Um, You're shrewd to have noticed that Poland is a counterexample to the narrative um, prevalent in the West, because the West is now Marxist and thinks that the economy determines everything. Um, uh, Poland has had the best quarter century in a thousand years. Um, even the, during the financial crisis, our economy cumulatively grew by 25% which proves your suggestion that it's about culture and about uh, psychology and about things other than the economy, even things other than economic fairness, because actually the Gini coefficient um, has been dropping in Poland, which means that the perception and reality of uh, social inequalities is less in Poland, unlike in some other countries, including this one. Um, which is why Poland is such a fascinating um, case to study, um, because it's about things that are hard to measure. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's so it's so kind of crazy. I, it's this uh, idea, and, and people long, I think, neglect this idea that uh, culture and ideology play a huge role in how people feel. Uh, I, I think in Poland's case, uh, an additional factor is uh, a rapid pace of secularization um, and the reaction to it of the endangered ma uh, majority of traditionalists. It's Roman Catholics. I mean, 90% Roman Catholic in Poland, so... But actually only a third go to church. Really? <laughs> so you see, you see why the Catholic Church in Poland may not like this globalization and this European integration stuff, uh, because they blame uh, the European Union, unfairly in my view, for the, this, these new cultural norms, which they don't like, uh, tolerance towards uh, all kinds of minorities. I want to switch to the United States uh, and a big topic in today that actually comes up every decade, you know, is American decline. The last 27 years, 30 years, at least we can say, some people call it an American era. And so far as we can call it the American era, do you think that's over? Uh, there's a Japanese saying, 
the sun either rises or it sets. And I fear that the Iraq war may have been for the American empire, what the Burr war was for the British empire. In other words, a conflict which one you win, but for which you pay such a price in treasure, in political capital, um, that your energies are sapped and, uh, and exhausted. Um, and uh, we know that China has already uh, surpassed the United States uh, as, and is now the, uh, on purchasing power parity, which is the real indicator. Uh, is the greatest economy on earth. It was much like actually during the Boer War, the United States was richer than Britain at the time uh, and had surpassed it uh, in, uh, in, its, in its wealth. Um, so you see it as a, we, we've reached that pivot. We're now on the other side of the pivot. And let's say we, me referring to the United States. Uh, what next do you think we will enter a new century uh, with, with one country on top? Or do you see it as a multipolar world? Uh, how do you see the next several well, decades? Mr. Xi Jinping wants to make China great again. And um, uh, you, China was a great power for um, uh, most of its existence. And of course, has a different model of uh, relationships with neighbors and, uh, and, uh, and rivals. Um, I think the uh, uh, suggestion for the United States is that if your relative power is less uh, than what it used to be, then you need allies even more. Uh, and who better but uh, allies that you share uh, cross investments, econom economy, but also history and, um, and values, uh, namely us Europeans. Um, every US administration learns that lesson afresh that you need allies and that actually when, when, when chips are down, you can usually count on us Europeans. In Europe, we say with other regions of the world, you have affairs. To us, you're married. What does Europe, on that point, what does Europe think of Trump? Do they think they're married to Trump? Well, we hope that the president is learning his job, that after initial skepticism towards NATO and allies, he's now calling them before ordering a strike on Syria and receiving them in Washington and, and, um, and discussing how to do things together. Um, uh, so we hope that the learning curve is steep. Do, 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 you, do they think of Trump as malleable, uh, as someone who, you know, people say the last person to speak into his ear uh, or... Um or you know, if you give him, if you lavish him with with compliments, he will he will uh, listen to you more. Um, what? Uh, how do you? If you were a strategist for for getting what you wanted done with Trump, how? What would you do? Well, flattery is one of the cheapest currencies in diplomacy. So uh, if that's what's required, that's what should be done. Do, are there anything else? <laughs> and then uh, one hopes that. Uh, the United States uh, assesses its own interests uh, in an objective fashion, and then, and then we'll do what is um, what is in the interest of the American people. And then we have no doubt that a continued partnership with Europe uh, is uh, is the best path. I see. So, do you see as Macron as a as a leader in that regard? Of course, people talk about Macron having the best relationship uh, with Trump, uh, not just in Europe. I mean, maybe in the world. Um, do you think he's doing it right? 
I, I think he, he tried very hard. Um, uh, and I think uh, Chancellor Merkel is next. Right. Uh, and I think it's important for President Trump, the President of the United States, to um, hear the opinions of friends on issues uh, that are controversial, like the Iran deal, like uh, uh, trade relations, uh, like Syria and so many others. You're a big fan of Twitter. Um, you have one million plus followers. What does that feel like? Well, it's a sort of life after life for a politician. Uh, you can stay in the conversation and, and have a feeling that, that somebody is paying attention. Um, That's not just for vanity, right? It's a real tool, isn't it? It's a tool. It's a dangerous tool, of course. Um, it's a tool uh, which allows you to go over the head of journalists, which is nice. Um, but you say that as a former journalist yourself. Sure. Uh, but, you know, I risked my life to get my stories and not all the journalists uh, uh, check their uh, facts as assiduously. Um, uh, but yes, it's a, it's a tool of, uh, of remaining part of the national conversation. But you had Twitter as uh, a serving minister. Yep. So... You know, you had it as well, not just life after politics, but during politics. And we were ranked uh, number three in the world as the foreign minister of Poland in uh, influence uh, in social media. Yeah. So do you see that as so you said it's a, it's a dangerous thing, but do you see it as a new way of diplomacy or do it's you see a dangerous it's a thing? Because because once in a while yeah. you uh, say something uh, controversial, you're right. If you're in, if you want to be interesting, otherwise, but 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 that's what, uh, that's why I have a million followers because people feel that it's really me uh, writing it and that I I say it like it is, uh, and that of course means that just occasionally you get into trouble. And so you don't see it as, <laughs> um, but so you, to get to get followers, you have to be a little confident. You have to stir the pot a little bit. Um, you have to be authentic, or you be genuine. Yeah. Another thing that I wanted to ask you about is I was reading a little bit about Polish food. What, what Polish foods are your favorite? Um, well, like all food, to be good has to be fresh. And uh, uh, Poland's uh, speciality are things that, uh, that are special to Poland. Mushrooms, for example. We have excellent soups. Um, we have game. Uh, and Polish agriculture is less in industrialized than, say, American agriculture, and therefore much of our food is um, is more authentic and more wholesome. But if you're interested in Polish food, there's an excellent Polish cookbook written by Anne Applebaum, uh, entitled "From My Polish Garden," uh, which I can uh, thoroughly recommend because it was uh, written and tested in our own house in Poland. Do you, do you think that is that forms a part of a national identity. We were talking about ideology earlier, and food is such a such a raw and real thing. Um, do you see that as reflective? Do you see that as something that actually forms a part of the identity of the nation? Absolutely, yeah. It's part of uh, one's uh, um, uh, feeling, uh, idea of oneself, and uh, 
you like to eat what you uh, used to eat at your grandmother's table. And do you think there's a diplomatic element to it? Oh, uh, we uh, used Polish food as a strategic commodity in uh, in our diplomacy because food is a is a huge, uh, I think, number two export for Poland, which is also interesting intellectually when you think about it. Uh, communism collapsed in Poland partly because it couldn't feed its people. We had we had permanent food shortages. And with the same territory, we are now yeah. exporting Yeah, but food, food shortages are political. <laughs> they're not, uh, they're not uh, natural, right? Political the, in the sense that it, these coal hoses and right. artificial prices and so on, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, but today, um, we use it for promoting Polish agri- agriculture and for promoting Poland. Uh, you know, uh, in diplomacy, you find out that most uh, ministries and um, and public institutions have rules on what kind of gifts you can accept, but you can almost always accept uh, food. Right, and because there's, there's a, usually a price cap, but when it's food, right. it's harder to because right. it's raw ingredients. And therefore, actually, if you cheap. give someone a, a basket of of Polish vodka and Polish cabanos and Polish uh, jams and uh, and Polish uh, sweets, they they love it. We and might call it gastro diplomacy. Uh, yeah. You might, but it's very effective. Well, I, th- I think there's something to breaking bread. I mean, if I just spend last point on this, I, I think you know they say you know when you break bread with somebody, I think there's more to just the idea of sitting down and having a meal. You know, if you were to serve me Polish food or I were to cook you a meal, there's something about that that yes. is almost primal. It's sort of like this, yes. you're taking care of the other person. Sitting down to a table and eating a meal breaks barriers between people. Well, Minister, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really, really fun. Pleasure. Office Hours was produced by the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government.